As we enter Leviticus chapter 18, we transition from the first half of the book that discusses how man should approach a holy God to now the second half, which unpacks how man should then live, now in light of God's presence, this relationship. Thematically, Leviticus not only establishes in the first half the precedent for grace, the foundation of our relationship with the divine, a sacrifice God makes, not one that we offer. But the book continues here in the last ten chapters, this second part explaining now all of the various ways God's grace changes everything. From human sexuality, interactions with parents, honoring the elderly, loving your neighbor, how we handle property, contracts, lending money, to the importance of taking a day off as well as prioritizing a break from the routine by going on vacation. All of these type of things are addressed in the second half of Leviticus. One of the grand criticisms of Leviticus is how, how it's not relevant to today's culture, but all of the topics I just mentioned are very, very relevant, aren't they? You see, the second half, chapters 18 through 27, practically address an array of topics concerning how you and I are to live and interact with the world around us as the chosen people of God. In order to make sense of Leviticus, it's always important to remember a central idea. And that is the fact that God called the Hebrew people out of the land of Egypt. He liberated them from their bondage and their slavery to make them His own special people. But then He orders their lives in a very particular way, to contrast the world around them in order to demonstrate that there is a better way to live. Leviticus chapter 18, beginning with verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. According to the doings of the land of Egypt where you dwelt, you shall not do. And according to the doings of the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you, you shall not do. Nor shall you walk in their ordinances. It's, it's as though God here in chapter 18, beginning, transitioning, He's saying to the people, you're mine. You're different. As such, I don't want you to live like the Egyptians. This culture that you've spent the last 400 years in a culture that's influenced almost every aspect of how you think and see the world. I don't want you to live like them, nor do I want you to live like the Canaanites. I've liber liberated you from the Egyptians. I'm leading you to the land of Canaan, but this new culture that will seek to influence you, don't let it. The culture that has influenced you, I've got to reprogram. We've got to deal with that. The culture that will seek to influence you, resist it. Instead, Verse 4, you shall observe, and this word observe would be better translated as do. It's very simple. Do my judgments. If you're a note taker or like to make notations in your Bible, you probably want to circle the word my, my judgments. You see, God is going to make some moral determinations. He'll make moral determinations about what is right and what is wrong. It's what the word judgment means. He's going to go on the record concerning a lot of things. And note, they're His judgments, not your opinions. My judgments. God instructs us to do. He continues, and to keep or uphold my ordinances. The word ordinances are, are kind of the best practices that He's going to be establishing. He says to walk in them, to make them a foundational part of your being, of your life. Then He says, I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which, if a man does, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. As mentioned, in the following chapters, God will be establishing a new way of living in light of His relationship with the children of Israel, filling the tabernacle, this tent of meeting in the midst of the camp. God's presence with them in their midst and the middle of them would naturally influence every aspect of their life. That's what he's saying. I, you're my people. I'm with you. That's going to have an effect. If it's true. To this point, God, he declares this refrain. 
We've already seen the examples of it. I am the Lord your God. This, this statement, he repeats it an astounding 42 times pertaining to these various moral judgments. And in light of the seriousness of the instructions, God is consistently over and over and over reminding them in case they were to be offended or resist his credentials, his authority. I've liberated you. I've freed you. I am the Lord your God. This phrase, I am, speaking, referring back to Exodus 3, where Moses says, when I go, who do I say sent me? And God just says, say to them, I am that I am. So when this refrain happens, I am the Lord your God. Remember, I've earned the right to make judgments because I have freed you from bondage. I am your Lord. I am your God. As one commentator observed, Writing, quote, they were brought into a certain relationship with Jehovah. And that relationship had its distinct privileges and responsibilities. I am the Lord your God. This was to be the grounds of their conduct. They were to act in a way worthy of the one who had become their God and had made them his people. This relationship with God, completely based upon, well, God's grace. The fact that he chose them, he liberated them, he did a work they couldn't on their behalf. That reality should impact now every aspect of their conduct moving forward. Please understand, if you've accepted Jesus as your Savior, you've also subsequently made him your Lord. And by definition, that means that your will must cede to his. If you really believe that Jesus is your liberator, he's earned the right, he's earned the position, meaning the way in which you live your life, the way you make decisions about life, should be determined if Jesus is truly your Lord by him and not yourself. Like, you don't have to like it, but you have to accept it and surrender to it. Or... Just be real. You like Jesus. You think he's a cool guy, good, good teacher, good moral leader. But if you're not willing to cede your will to his, he's not your Lord. Nor, therefore, your Savior, and definitely not your God. It's also worth pointing out another idea that kind of arises, bubbles to the surface through this text. And it's an idea that stands in the face of multiculturalism. And that's the modernist belief that all cultures are somehow morally equal. Like relativism castigates those who claim an ethical superiority over others by seeking to level the playing field between all. While culture is undoubtedly distinct, and all cultures bring certain benefits, they claim it's only the bigot that doesn't view all cultures as being the same and both value and standing. And yet our text is clear that God does not view all cultures as being morally equivalent. You can't get around it. In fact, he specifically singles out two cultures. He tells his people to have nothing to do with. The Egyptians and the Canaanites. They were the antithesis of what God wanted the Hebrew people to be. He says clearly, according to the doings of the Egyptians, where you dwelt, don't do them. According to the doings of the, those in the land of Canaan, where I'm bringing you, you shall not do. To this point, C.H. McIntosh, which I think has, he's, he's an old author, he has the best commentary through the Pentateuch, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the best by far. But he writes, he says, the Egyptians... And the Canaanites were all wrong. How was Israel to know this? Who told them? How came they to be right and besides all wrong? The answer is simple. Is as simple as the question's interesting. Jehovah's word was the standard by which all questions of right and wrong were to be definitively settled in the judgment of every member of the Israel of God. It was not by any means the judgment 
of an Israelite in opposition to the judgment of an Egyptian or Canaanite, but it was the judgment of God above all. Egypt might have her practices and her opinions, and so might Canaan, but Israel was to have the opinions and practices laid down in the word of God. So often, Christians end up being accused of being judgmental often on account of our contrary moral positions with a secular society. The voices in our age will challenge. What right do you have to say that a woman doesn't have the right to abort a child? Or what gives you the moral standing to say that two people in love can't get married even if they're of the same sex? Or or what authority do you have to make a claim there are only two genders? And it's when faced with such accusations that we make the mistake of taking these things personally. (laughs) As if you and I are the ones that have established the Christian ethic. No, we haven't. Not at all. You and I, we have no right, authority, or moral standing on our own to make such determinations. Instead, it's our morality, our convictions, and our conduct that has been set forth by God, articulating these things through His Word. Christian, the secular world doesn't have a problem with you. They have a problem with the Lord, your God. Now, among all these things that we'll be looking at over the coming weeks, chapter 18, let's see what God has to say about sex. You ready for things to get weird? I'm ready for things to get weird. As a matter of fact, this chapter, the remaining verses, are about the closest you'll come in the Bible to an episode of Jerry Springer. It gets weird. Verse 6, buckle up. God says, none of you shall approach anyone who is near of kin to him to uncover his nakedness. I am the Lord. This phrase, to uncover his nakedness. It's an interesting phrase. It really speaks to the most intimate of all human interactions within the context of really man's greatest vulnerability and insecurities, his nakedness. Back in the Garden of Eden, in their perfect state, we're told in Genesis 2 verse 25 that Adam and Eve They were both naked, and they weren't ashamed. Beautiful garden, buck naked, running around, no inhibitions, having fun, eating fruit. It was good. And yet, in the moment that sin entered the human equation, Genesis 3 verse 7 records how, quote, the eyes of both of them were now opened, and they knew that they were naked. So they, sewed, so they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. As a direct result of our fallen, sinful nature, humanity's natural inclination is to be clothed. Like, how fascinating. That of all of the animals walking planet Earth, it is only the human species that possesses this core proclivity for clothing. My dog has no proclivity for clothing. We put a sweater on her once, and she didn't move. She just looked at us like, how dare you? Do you not realize I have a a coat of fur? This This is insanity. You need that. I don't. So we took it off of her, and then she started moving again. Well, our culture is both lewd and immodest, and I think that might be painting it lightly. It is still, though, the accepted norm, even in our immodesty, that a person's most private areas remain concealed from view. Like even the smuttiest of all bathing suits still extends over the most intimate parts of a woman. It might not be much fabric, but there's some. While pornography is a pandemic in our culture, one of epic proportions, the fact still remains that total nudity 
private exposure is not mainstream. There are some things that should remain covered. With that in mind, this idea of uncovering another person's nakedness not only spoke just logically of an intimate sexual interaction, intercourse, but it placed the act into a negative and degrading context. That's what the phrase does. Yes, uncovering nakedness describes a willful exposing of a person's private parts, consensual, but only in a way that in the end results in a particular uncleanness or defilement. Like the very first mention we have in the scriptures of nakedness, this word, perfectly illustrates the point. In Genesis 9, we read that Noah, this is following the flood, he became a farmer, planted a vineyard, drank of the wine, got drunk, and became uncovered in his tent. Literally in the Hebrew, was uncovered. Something devious. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, told his brothers outside, <clears throat> so he was mocking. But Shem and Japheth, the other brothers, took a garment, laid it on their shoulders, went backwards, and covered the nakedness. Not uncovered, but covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces turned away so that they did not see. So Noah woke up from his wine. He knew what his quote, younger son had done to him. Literally, this would be the oldest grandson. He knew what Canaan had done to him. Something sick and perverted, though we're not told specifically. So he curses Canaan and declares that he would be a servant of servants to his brethren. And of course, Canaan, this son of grandson of Noah, is where we get the Canaanites. They settled in the land that God is now leading his people towards. Now, if you're like me in regards to verse 6, this prohibition of any and all sexual interactions happening between those near of kin, your reaction to that is probably like mine, and it's simple. <laughs> all right, I got no problems with that. You know, in a chapter where we're going to get weird, uh, prohibiting sex with a kin, kinfolk, I'm cool with that. God, you and I, were on the same page. With maybe the exception of someone that lives in Alabama, we're all right with such prohibitions. Inter-family interactions, eh, we're good. As a matter of fact, I mean, did you notice that God even, even stated this using terms near and dear to a Southerner? He didn't say your family, he said your kin. And yet, what many people fail to consider about verse 6 is actually how radical this prohibition was the moment God gave it. Like, people don't like talking about this reality, and we wouldn't be if we weren't going verse by verse, chapter by chapter through books of the Bible, so we can't avoid it. But the truth is Leviticus 18, this moment where God gets really detailed about what types of marriages are not permissible, the reason he does this is because until this particular prohibition, incestual marriages in the Bible were normal. Like, in fact, many of the marriages that we're about to see prohibited in Leviticus 18 occurred all throughout the book of Genesis. Like, logically, if the entire human species began with one man and one woman, Adam and Eve, as the Bible claims, the development of the human race necessitated, ah, let's get weird, but at least a few brothers marrying sisters, a few uncles with nieces, etc., cousins. Then when God hits reset on the whole thing with a global flood, Genesis 6, preserving Noah, his three sons, their wives, the same kind of practices were required again, like they had to happen again. Moving beyond even that, Genesis 20, verse 12 tells us that Abraham, the father of the faith, you know who he married? Sarah, who was his half-sister. Their son Isaac, beautiful love story with Rebecca until you think about the fact she's first cousin. And then Isaac's son Jacob, he not only goes and marries a cousin, he marries two cousins, the original sister wives, Rachel and Leah. Then because the whole family ends up residing in Egypt, it's, it's likely that the practice continued among cousins for at least, at a minimum, a few more generations. Like We have no other references of inner family marriages occurring 
during their 400 years in Egypt. In fact, Joseph married an Egyptian named Aseneth, Genesis 41, verse 45. Moses married a Midianite gal named Zipporah, Exodus 2.21. But because incestuous relationships remain common, at least in Egypt, we won't, I won't bore you with the details, and definitely in Canaan, God now decides for the well-being of His people, their health, vitality, it was time to forbid these type of practices moving forward once and for all. And you can get into conversations about uh, the diluting of the gene pool and why this was now uh, a problem and, and would create difficulties moving forward. I'm not going to bore you with it all. You can <laughs> research that more on your own. Verse 7, let's just kind of work our way through it. You ready? The nakedness of your father or the nakedness of your mother you shall not uncover. <laughs> She's your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. So sex with mom and dad's forbidden. The nakedness of your father's wife, you shall not uncover. It's your father's nakedness. So your stepmom is also off limits, which again is interesting. In Genesis 35, verse 22, Reuben, the oldest son of Jacob, ends up knocking boots with one of his father's concubines, a gal named Bilhah, prohibited now. The nakedness of your sister, the daughter of your father, or the daughter of your mother, whether born at home or elsewhere, their nakedness you shall not uncover. So sex with a sister or a stepsister is banned. Verse 10. The nakedness of your son's daughter or your daughter's daughter, their nakedness you shall not uncover, for theirs is your own nakedness. So no sexual relations with grandkids. That's prohibited. The nakedness of your father's wife's daughter, begotten by your father. She's your sister. You shall not uncover her nakedness. So God here is prohibiting the very relationship that Abraham and Sarah had. Weird. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's sister. She is near of kin to your father. So no sex with the hot aunt on your father's side. And just because God knows how we think, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister. She's near of kin to your mother, so no sex with the hot aunt on your mom's side. God covering all of his bases. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's brother. Approach his wife. She's your aunt. So also aunts by marriage. Off limits. Verse 15. Welcome to church. Uh, verse 15, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your daughter-in-law. She's your son's wife. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. Now, what's interesting about this is that in Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 10, there's a, a bit of a concession that's made about this command. If the brother were to die, and you happen to hold this place in the family known as the Goel, or the kinsman redeemer. So your brother died, but didn't leave any type of an heir. So they were childless. As the Goel, you could sleep with your brother's wife in that situation to provide an heir to keep the family lineage of your brother intact. Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 10. Uh, you can read more about it if your brother has died leaving behind a wid widow, and you're trying to figure out your responsibilities now. Don't do that, by the way. Verse 17, you shall not uncover the nakedness of a woman and her daughter. So, no mother-daughter situations. Nor shall you take her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter to uncover her nakedness. They are near akin to her. It is wickedness. So, no mother-granddaughter dynamics. Nor shall you take a woman as a rival to her sister to uncover her nakedness while the other is still alive. So it's forbidden to marry sisters at the same time. Which is a bummer for Jacob, because this is a prohibition of marrying Rachel and Leah. However, the concession, if one of the sisters dies, the other sister is now available. Verse 19. Also, you shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness as long as she is in her customary impurity. Uh, don't have sex with a woman during her monthly cycle. Moreover, you shall not lie carnally with your neighbor's wife to defile yourself with her. 
Now, what we find here is just kind of this broad prohibition pertaining to adultery, lying with your neighbor's wife. It's, it's worth noting, and this will make more sense a bit later, but instead of using this phrase, uncover her nakedness, we have a new phrase introduced. In regards to adultery or your neighbor's wife, you're not to lie carnally with her. Uh, while the first implied marriage as a dynamic, the second act spoke of copulation or sex for carnal purposes. It's a different word. We'll get to it more in a minute. Verse 21 And you shall not let any of your descendants pass through the fire of Molech, nor shall you profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Uh, In Canaanite culture, one of their main deities was this god Molech. And the worship of Molech included some horrific barbaric practices, most notably child sacrifice. Uh, God's going to speak more about Molech, kind of extensively, in the first several verses of Leviticus 21. So we're just going to kind of leave our commentary about Molech to another study. Verse 22, You shall not lie with a male... As with a woman, it is an abomination. Now, let's finish the chapter. We're going to come back to that. Nor shall you mate with any animal to defile yourself with it. Nor shall any woman stand before an animal to mate with it. Uh, This idea of standing before is to present oneself before, to tarry, to wait. Again, God's very specific saying if you're a man, you can mate quicker than if you're a woman, it takes more time. Either dynamic, don't do it. He says it's a perversion. This word perversion means it's literally a violation of of nature, the natural order. It yields confusion. Uh, By the way, the word mate that we have here is the same word we found in verse 20, translated lie carnally. So the idea here is don't pleasure yourself with an animal which is obviously a prohibition against bestiality. Verse 24, Do not defile yourself with any of these things. For by all these the nations are defiled, which I am casting out before you. So God is saying, the Canaanites do these things. Don't do them. It's a defilement. I'm going to kick them out of the land as a result. This line, defile yourselves, it's also worth noting that sexual sin is fundamentally a crime against whom? It's yourself, is that it's a crime against. God continues, For the land is defiled, therefore I visit the punishment of its iniquity upon it, and the land vomits out its inhabitants. The idea is a failure to obey these things would result in a terrible, violent judgment of God. Finishing out the chapter, verse 26, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, shall not commit any of these abominations, either any of your own nation or any stranger who dwells among you. For these abominations the men of the land have done who were before you, and thus the land is defiled. Lest the land vomit you out also when you defile it, as it vomited out the nations that were before you. No doubt he's referring to the Canaanites. For whoever commits any of these abominations, the person who commits them shall be cut off from among their people. As we'll see in Leviticus 22, In truth, many of these violations would result in a death penalty. Therefore, you shall keep my ordinance so that you do not commit any of these abominable customs which were committed before you, and that you do not defile yourselves by them. I am the Lord your God. Now, before we wrap up this section, let's get back to the elephant in the text. And that is verse 22 of chapter 18, when the Lord God says to his people, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. God's words, not mine. God's words. In the Hebrew, the word abomination, uh, it's bad. It's literally, it's a disgusting thing. In our modern culture, where homosexuality and gay marriage has not only become accepted and celebrated, Marriage, normalized, with defenders claiming the moral high ground, lambasting anyone who would dare disagree, that such a verse, like we find in Leviticus 18, verse 22, would be so much easier for us to ignore. Or at a minimum, kind of 
excuse away, brush under the rug, and move on. That being said, because we teach verse by verse, chapter by chapter, we don't have that luxury. I don't have that luxury. We're going to deal with this. It is not um, a real popular topic, which is interesting to me because we live in a culture that is absolutely wrestling with sexual identity. This is a hot-button topic, and yet the irony is the church is, is, is silent on it. You rarely hear a pastor from a pulpit on a Sunday talk about homosexuality. Why? Because people don't want to hear about it. Again, we don't have that option. Leviticus 18, within this text, we've seen two different phrases, Hebrew phrases, describing two different sexual situations. Most frequently, we have this phrase, uncovered her nakedness, or their nakedness, or whatnot, which prohibited a consensual sexual activity in a marital context on a wide array of inter-family relationships, uncovered nakedness. The other phrase, the other word that we have, is, is this dual one. We have lying carnally with your neighbor's wife, this Hebrew word, same word, mating with an animal. In both dynamics, the word is used, it's employed because it spoke of a sexual interaction for the sole purpose of pleasure. That's why the word's used. It's totally different. You can't marry an animal. You're not consummating a marriage. You can't marry your neighbor's wife because it's the wife of your neighbor. So you're having this activity, you're having sex for carnal purposes to get your jollies off. That said, in verse 22, we have a third word being used, translated lie with, that not only spoke of a sexual interaction, but was even broader than that. Like this Hebrew verb, shahav, it meant, aside from just sex, to sleep alongside of, to rest upon, to lodge in, or to lie down with. Like within the context of such a passage, what this tells us is that God is not only issuing a prohibition of any homosexual relationships between a man and a man, and logically a woman and a woman, but God is doing something else that we should not overlook in using this word. He's forbidding a man from finding within another man what was reserved solely for the interactions that were to occur between a man and a woman. Now, I found, and I think this is important, that most people who are gay are genuinely longing for human intimacy. I think they genuinely long for commitment, covenant, connection. And I think that they long for those things mainly because God has instilled that desire in all of humanity. Every man and a woman longs for human intimacy with another human being, a connection. True companionship, reciprocal love is something that God hardwired into the very fabric of the human experience. I believe this is why the gay lobby so passionately fought for the right to marry. And yet, in this passage, God does something interesting. God forbids homosexual relationships because true oneness can only happen in the context of a man and a woman. Like two people becoming one, oneness, requires a distinction that homeosaneness can never replicate or possess. Let me explain why this is the case. God's ideal for sexual intimacy and marital oneness could not have been more clear. Upon seeing Eve, Adam, what does he say? Genesis 2, verse 23, he says, This bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Then, after taking from man the woman... God establishes immediately the institution of marriage. Relational oneness and intimacy 
How? In the reunification of the male and female genders through sex. Immediately, the next verse, therefore, God says a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, or one. They shall become one flesh. One man, Adam, God took and separated into two equal but distinct genders, male and female. Then God immediately reunifies them in this covenant called marriage, consummated through sexual intercourse. A heterosexual, monogamous relationship between a man and a woman occurring under the protections of the covenantal bond of marriage is, you can disagree or agree, but it is God's plan for marriage as articulated in the Scripture. It's what God planned for humanity. It is a relationship of oneness, marriage, through gender distinctions, not gender sameness. I should also add something else that this verse tells us. In using a different word for this homosexual dynamic than the word that's used for bestiality, it is absolutely wrong and detestable for any Christian or pastor to make a moral equivalency between the two actions. It's not what Leviticus says. This Hebrew word, shaha'av, it presents the motivation of a man lying with a man as with a woman as being just as much relational and emotional as it is physical. Like, in fact, I recoil personally when I hear Christians compare homosexuality to sex with animals or pedophilia. Like, according to Leviticus 18, <laughs> what's interesting is it's actually the act of committing adultery that's more in line with this base animal perversion than anything else because it desecrates the marital covenant. It's the same word used for adultery that's used for bestiality, not homosexuality. You want to act like an animal, then you act like an animal. To be as brutally transparent as I can be about these things. And I should say, maybe it was, it was nice knowing you. We were glad you were at our church for the time that you were. And then we got to this passage, and we wish you the best. But because we live in a secular society, I'm going to say something kind of controversial here. Not that I haven't already. But I have absolutely no problems with people choosing a homosexual lifestyle. I don't have any problems with them getting married by the state if they decide to. Additionally, I believe like Jesus would, it's the Christian's responsibility to love these people and treat them with, with an abundance of kindness. Like America is not Israel. It's not Israel of old. Like, I know that this runs against the, the, the evangelical ideal, but like we are not God's chosen people. <laughs> we, Christians we are, but not America. In fact, our laws today are very far from their Judeo-Christian origins. Let's just be honest about that. Like living in such a place as a Christian, a sojourner, a pilgrim, I'm passing through. I believe free-willed adults have the liberty to make decisions that I might morally disagree with. I just wish I'd be extended the same courtesy. I wish I were. You know, in Saudi Arabia, Islamists will stone homosexuals to death in the public square. But in America, it's Christians. The gay mafia seeks to stone in the court of public opinion. I have no problems with you doing what you want. You live in the way that you feel. Again, either Jesus is your Lord or he's not, but if he's not your Lord, why should I have the expectations you would live any other way than the morality you set for yourself? But the problem I have is when our culture demands I equate the secular position concerning marriage with the biblical definition. Because they're not the same. 
or when the state seeks to force the church to participate and celebrate something that it is an abomination to Scripture. You know, it's, it's interesting. But how liberals quickly forget how important it is to remain uh, the church and the state separate. <laughs> we hear that a lot. Separate. Separation of church and state. Until the issue of, of gay marriage comes along and then the state says, no, 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 no. We're not separate. Hey, I wish and hope and long that we just coexist. It's even thinking about getting some bumper stickers made. You know, can we just coexist? That we can agree to disagree, but do so agreeably. This past summer on Meet the Press, the former mayor of South Bend, Indiana, presidential hope for hopeful Mayor Pete, Pete Buttigieg, who is gay, married to his partner, claims to be a Christian. He said the following about Vice President Mike Pence, who's an evangelical. He says, quote, If me being gay was a choice, it was a choice that was made far, far above my pay grade. Buttigieg adds, The thing I wish the Mike Pence's of the world would understand that if you got a problem with who I am, your problem is not with me. Your quarrel is with my creator. The problem with such a position is who exactly is his creator? Like Pete, like lots, they ignore the fact that the concept of marriage being joined together, the joining together of one male and one female was not only established by God, in Genesis. But you know who else reiterated the same mandate? Jesus. You know, Jesus, that bigot. In Matthew 19, Jesus said, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, Jesus, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. Again, if you've got a problem with it, you just got a problem with Jesus. And that's okay. Just be real about it. But Zach, we're under grace. We're under grace, Zach. I completely agree. But don't forget it's God's grace that enables a person to live a life in line with God's word and not in contradiction to it. You see, the New Testament carries forth the exact same prohibition. I won't read you the passages. You can go to Romans 1. You can go to 1 Corinthians 6. You can go to 1 Timothy 1. Over and over and over again, we find the same prohibitions. Friend, you are completely free to be whoever you want to be. And since we live in a country that says you can marry the same sex, if that's what you want to do, by all means, go for it. But I don't have to celebrate it. But I will say that the truly twisted notion is the idea or the claim that God is okay with it. It's not the God of the Bible. You know, the irony of gay pride. Just break down the phrase. Gay pride. It's celebrating a lifestyle that God's on the record calling an abomination, and it's articulating an attitude that's shared by Satan. Pride is not an admirable quality. In fact, it comes before destruction. Like if you accept the refrain, I am the Lord your God, then God's word, even if it's awkward and it runs against culture and it results in persecution, God's word should trump your opinion. Before we conclude, I want to add a very, very important caveat. If you're super ticked off at me right now, Sorry, but just stay there for a moment and listen to me because there's a caveat. God views same-sex attraction as being a much, much different thing than an active homosexual lifestyle. And we actually find that in Leviticus 18, verse 22. It's in our passage. Look at it again. The, the, The prohibition is what? You shall not lie. You see, the passage is speaking of what? An action, not an attraction. You see, I I hesitate to concede the I was born this way 
argument, as, as a justification for human behavior. In fact, a recent study published by Harvard in conjunction with MIT calls into question the entire notion of a genetic causation for same-sex attraction, implying it's largely behavioral. But the fact is, the Bible, the Bible teaches that every single one of us, every person born on the planet, possesses, by birth, warped tendencies. It's the nature of sin. Yeah, having a sexual attraction for the same gender, it doesn't make you a pervert. Nor does having an attraction for the same sex exclude you from being a follower of Jesus. All that it means is that you're human. Born with the effects of sin. This fallen nature we've all inherited for Adam. All it means is that you're broken just like me, just differently. You see, when Jesus says to Nicodemus, this iconic scene, John chapter 3, when Jesus says to Nicodemus, he's like, how should we inherit, how do we get the kingdom of God? Jesus says, Nicodemus, you must be born again to inherit the kingdom of God. And in this statement, Jesus is articulating likely the most controversial idea ever uttered by any person on planet earth. Because what Jesus is saying, don't miss it, is he's affirming the way you were born falls short. Like he's actually saying, if the way you were born is not addressed, you won't inherit the kingdom of God. You have to be born again. We've got to deal with this thing that happened at birth. In fact, the essence of the gospel message is that Jesus came to do what? He came to transform who you are, the way you were born, by making you into the person you're not. Okay, Zach, I have this, I have this struggle. I have the same-sex attraction. Well, what do I do about it? First, pride in who you are will always keep you from who God wants you to be. I don't care if, you're, if your problem is, is with sexuality or lying or just being a jerk. If, you're, if your pride is rooted in the fact that you're a jerk or self-sufficient or I'm he-man, it'll separate you from anything God wants to do in your life. It doesn't matter. So first, you've got to come to this term. Like all men have to come to a point where they, de they desire to be saved from something. Liberated, freed. And then the remedy in the context is the remedy for all of us. Give your life to Jesus. Be ye born again through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God. You see, contrary to what the world says, the Bible is clear that it is entirely possible for Jesus to transform an area of your life yielded through genetics or biology or experience or whatever, he can change you. Old things can pass away. All things can become new. He can take what was broken and make it new. That's what he's in the business of doing. Even sex and attraction. Again, our culture, it's, it's, it's conflicting. With one breath, we're told that a person can be gender fluid. Okay, So why can't you be sexually fluid? And yet, well, I believe God can free you from something and change you. If the attraction to the opposite sex remains your struggle, even as a follower of Jesus, remember, you're way more than your sexual proclivities. You're a child of God. Your identity, friend, is not that you're gay. Your identity is that you've been bought and bought by the blood of Christ. If you're struggling with same-sex attraction, personally, if you have a loved one that is, or you just want a, a more broad understanding, at the bottom of c316.tv, I've got a link to a book. And it's, it's this book right here. It's titled, Is God Anti-Gay? And it's written by a man named Sam Alberry. I won't spoil you, but Sam, when he was 18, two things happened at once. He realized he was not attracted to women, and he gave his life to Jesus. 
and immediately had to figure out how to reconcile the two. And he writes, every passage in the scriptures that deal with homosexuality, he addresses. He goes through extensively. He tells his story. And his whole deal is that, is that it, it's, it's what is my identity. My identity is not rooted in fallenness. It's rooted in who I am in Jesus. It is a powerful book because of his own context and his own story. He, he writes, he's a pastor. He is, he, to this day, still struggles with same-sex attraction, but he's celibate. And he's like, what's the problem with that? Jesus was celibate. Paul was celibate. In fact, Paul writes extensively that uh, the, the decision to be celibate actually gives you more opportunity for ministry than the married man. It's a powerful book. I'll also say, and this is not uh, for self-promotion, but uh, I had the extreme, uh, uh, it was the honor, it was an honor. I had him on my radio show. Um, I did a, a two-part interview with Sam Alberry where we talked not just about his story and some things about the book, but talk a bit more about, about this particular topic. Um, outlawradio.org, go to the podcast. Uh, in fact, I think at the bottom of C316.tv, I got links to both of uh, the interviews. My point is that um, uh, it's, it's, it's a helpful, easy read. It'll take you like an hour to get through it. Uh, but if, if you're struggling with these things, you know someone that is, or you just want a better understanding of what the Bible has to say, um, can't recommend that book enough. God cares about sex. You know why? Because he invented it. Not only did he invent it, but like, I can't stand, can't stand when Christians will say that sex is, is purely for procreation. Now that's what results from what sex was for. Oneness. Having fun. And he, and he, he not only created and wired you with triggers of enjoyment and pleasure, but then he created this incredible framework by which you, as a created person, could explore that and enjoy that and have fun with that in marriage and this protection, this, con- this cocoon of commitment, love, vulnerability. If there's an application, um, if you're married, um, have sex God's way today. Father, thank you for your word.